Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's online event hosted by the International Inequalities Institute, the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program, the Atlantic Institute, the LSE Department of Social Policy and LSE Cities. My name is Dr. Amina Ishkanian, and I am the Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program, which is based at the International Inequalities Institute. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Department of Social Policy. I'm incredibly pleased to be chairing this evening's event titled Policy and Social Change. Our speakers today are Dr. Amara Enya, Tracy Yusta, and Dr. Robtel Nijai Paley. Unfortunately, Professor Ricky Burdett, who was meant to join us, could not join us this evening. The panel of speakers are working at the intersection of research and policy. And at today's event, they will discuss the question, what is the relationship between policy and social change? Dr. Amara Anya is the Manager of Policy and Research with the Movement for Black Lives, founder of Global Black and Atlantic Institute's Leader in Residence. Tracy Yusta is a Senior Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity with expertise in urban governance, water, sanitation, and housing policy. And she is also an Atlantic Institute Leader in Residence. Dr. Robtel Nijay Paley is an assistant professor <clears throat> in international social and public policy at the Department of Social Policy at the LSE. And she is a faculty associate at the International Inequalities Institute. Please note that we have a live captioner and British sign language interpreters at today's event. To activate the captions, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screens. You can also access larger captions by using the link that has been posted in the chat box. If you wish to make use of the BSL interpretation, please pin the two interpreters to your screen. To do this, please hover over each of their videos and click the three dots and select pin. This event will run for around an hour and 30 minutes from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Our speakers will present for around an hour and have a discussion amongst themselves. And then I will open the floor for questions from the audience. We'll have approximately 30, question, um, 30 minutes for questions. If you would like to ask a question to our speakers, please use the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. And we would be grateful if you would state your name and affiliation where possible. So I'm now going to hand over to Tracy and Amara to begin their presentation. I'm very much looking forward to hearing your talk. Thanks so much, Amina. Um, I'm going to just share my screen and I will kick us off the presentation in a second. Okay, so. 
Thanks everyone for, for having us here today. Um, Amari and I are going to share insights from a research project that we did for the Atlantic Institute in our capacity as leaders in residence for policy change. Our, um, our work for the Institute was focused on understanding how Atlantic fellows engage with policy change and in particular how the Atlantic Institute can support fellows in their work across various sectors and in their communities. So it's a very specific um, viewpoint that we are uh, doing research on this topic of, of policy change. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Atlantic Institute, um, the Institute is the custodian and catalyst of seven Atlantic fellowship programs around the globe, um, all focused on building capacity and investing resources into practitioners, researchers, academics, um, activists who are leading change in their respective communities. So some of the primary research questions we um, grappled with or engaged with when we're speaking to fellows was really about how fellows engage with the levers of power for policy change, understanding who they engage in, in the efforts to affect policy change, and then what tools, resources, and skills they need to enable policy change. Um, fundamentally, the process was really about grappling this question about how policy change happens, um, which is a question which all of us, I think, working in the development sector confront in our work. And it was really important for us to understand with this community specifically that have been part of this fellowship, what their experiences and learnings are. So as part of this process, we conducted extensive qualitative research, speaking to fellows across the seven programs. Um, we spoke to the fellowship program directors across the programs and then the Atlantic Institute staff as well to get a really rich um, sense of, of fellows' experiences and then what is needed to really um, catapult their work to, to the next level as individuals and as a community. So just in terms of the, the seven fellowship programs, they cover different sectors and this is just uh, gives you a sense of where they're located around the globe. There's a big focus on health, brain health, health equity, racial equity, social and economic equity. Um, and this community is growing each year. Um, at this point, there's 583 fellows and they are incredibly diverse. Um, and that diversity uh, was a really important part of of the process for us because we realized that with that level of diversity there's so many rich experiences but it doesn't make it a bit harder to find what those common ground uh, aspects are in terms of, of the fellows work and in terms of what they need in order to do their, their work better so that was a really interesting part of this process for us to to grapple with that that diversity um, to draw the value from it but then also to find places really where fellows can find synergy in their work around policy change and all of this is towards one goal um, which is, is equity across various sectors. So one of the first questions we posed to fellows in our interviews what is what policy change means to them. And across the board, most of the fellows um, started the discussion by referencing how policy can be exclusionary. And sometimes that's by design. Um, government in particular sometimes doesn't want people to know how policies are developed. We don't necessarily want them to know how decisions are made um, behind the veil of, of government. And so these exclusionary processes was identified by many fellows as the source of the problem. And for that reason, um, the space where change really needs to start. So looking at those processes, looking at ways of making them more accessible um, and, and less elite and exclusionary. Um, one of the other things that came up in our conversations was just how 
Um, there are certain connotations with the public policy and social change. Um, it's not safe to assume that that policy change is always for the greater good. And so it's really important to, to dig beneath the surface and interrogate some of the details of, of policies when, when we're working in this space. So with that in mind, many of the fellows um, in our community are focused on not only policy outcomes and outputs, but really how policy is developed. So focus on um, themselves leading change for processes which are more inclusive, rather, which focus on devolving power uh, to communities who are most influenced by policies. And often those are people who are left out of these decisions. Um, you know, fellows have told us policy fundamentally is about people. So it's their mission to bring those processes not only closer to the people in a way that is just consultative, but really about meaningful engagement. Um, I can speak from my own experience working in, in South Africa around water and sanitation policies. More and more, we see government putting barriers in place um, for people to access information, access information about the budget. So insisting that, that we follow a legal application process to get information, which otherwise should be public information. And so a big part of my work is also focused on making information about budgets and policies available particularly to the urban poor, so that they understand not only their rights, but, but how they can influence change in their own communities. And I think that's very much the focus of many of the fellows we spoke to as well. And then fellows identified that there are many pathways to policy change. Uh, there's not a, a blueprint, there's not one way to do this. Um, for many of them, they're using a combination of strategies. Um, from very direct advocacy missions where they are meeting with decision makers and bringing communities um, to be able to engage directly with decision makers about policy decisions which affect their own well-being. But they're also using indirect ways to influence policy, um, social media, mainstream media, for example, research to build up evidence in support of, of the social justice uh, agendas. And then the grassroots mobilization came through really strongly that's again about inclusion and devolution of power, but also about scale. And so many of, of our fellows identify the importance of coalitions to be able to scale up their work and impact. Uh, but also to say that the coalitions is something that we, it's a term that we use quite often in the development sector, uh, but these are not easy uh, partnerships to forge. Um, it's really important to find individuals and organizations that, that share your values and are committed to, to partnering, sharing resources, uh, sharing insights for a common agenda. So these are some of the key findings that, that came out of the discussion around um, how change, uh, what policy change means to fellows. And I'm gonna hand over to Amara to, to give you some reflections on um, the question around whether policy leads to social change based on fellows feedback. Thank you so much, Tracy, for, for that overview and just some of the critical questions that we asked as we engaged fellows and um, directors and other leaders within uh, the Atlantic Institute. But we wanted to make sure also that we tied this into some of the current things that have been happening around the world and just this, this critical question of whether policy actually leads to social change. Uh, if it does, what does that look like? And so um, the process of gathering some of that feedback from the fellows was quite iterative, but it was also illuminating in the sense of just hearing how fellows are working in their, in their own particular space. 
But we also wanted to make sure that we had very realistic conversations about what it actually means to engage in this work, especially because of our backgrounds um, in public policy, uh, coming out of movement space for those of us who've worked as organizers um, or who have been as part of broader social movements. And so the answer to the question that we, that we pose, does policy lead to social change? Sometimes, but not always, right? And then of course, there are questions of what are the gradients of that change, right? What are the increments of that change, if at all? Um, and a large part of this is because there are factors outside of our control that have a big influence. We're living through one of them, a global pandemic, which uh, none of us could have predicted, at least I couldn't have predicted um, what happened. And yet it has had a profound effect on every aspect of life, something that was completely out of um, our control. Um, uh, we also have talked about political shifts, um, technology, wars. These are things that at least for those of us who are outside of those spheres, it is something that th these are things that are out of our control, but that have a big influence on, uh, on whether change occurs, what that change looks like. And as Tracy mentioned earlier, sometimes that change doesn't necessarily promote social and economic justice. So we do have to kind of decouple the notion of policy from the notion of justice, right? Because in many instances, it can go the other way. And so um, we talked about the different influences of power, visible power, hidden power, invisible power. Um, and this is because you really can't have a conversation about policy and policy change without talking about the power dynamics. Who is able to assert their power in a space? Um, who has access to the corridors of power in a space? These are the real questions that fellows who are doing this work in their day-to-day -day lives have to have to grapple with. And so when we're talking about social change, we cannot do so without engaging these different aspects of power. Also, um, timing was another factor that is absolutely critical. So again, thinking about the things that are out of our control, but also there are things like elections, for example, that can have an influence on the ability to enact uh, social change measures. Um, if the environment is politically conducive and an election is coming up, uh, that's oftentimes an opportunity for people to really ramp up um, their efforts or to take advantage of the enthusiasm or the attention around an election, for example, to advance a particular cause. So timing is absolutely critical when it comes to thinking about whether policy can lead to social change. And so the question becomes, how do we better understand what those critical timeframes are? Um, how do we take advantage of them to advance our a policy or an advocacy agenda? Um, and then you'll see one of the quotes, you have to keep track of, keep track of, navigate and understand the many moving parts and people involved in the policymaking process. This is something that came directly from the fellows that we engaged. We also wanted to shed some insight on what policy failures look like. Again, tying this back into the real world experiences of the fellows and what's happening broadly. Um, so what do those policy failures look like? Much of policy change is about correcting historical policy failures. This is because of this notion of the lag. So when a policy is implemented, it doesn't mean that the results are going to be seen immediately. Um, one, there, there are actually a number of examples of this. So right now, for example, in Chicago, we have a big issue that is front and center about violence. 
And um, you'll see a lot of measures that are put in place now can be very reactionary. So the default will be to police or policing and police infrastructure. Um, but really, there were a number of policies tied to uh, getting rid of or, or uh, eliminating uh, public housing 20 years ago. There are policies that are tied to when the city um, closed down several mental health clinics over 10 years ago. There are so many different policies that were actually implemented years and even a generation ago that have present that are manifesting presently in what we see in our uh, in our city. And so understanding that the correction of historical policy failures, sometimes those policy failures don't manifest until later on. And so it's important for us to have uh, that in the, in, in the back of our minds. Um, also, the notion of incremental change. Uh, and the other notion of how can we create a sense of urgency. And so this is oftentimes plays out in political discussions where you have those of us who happen to be more on the radical side and really pushing for transformational change on a short time scale versus those who push for incremental change little by little, bit by bit. Um, and so the question that has that came up in a lot of our conversations is how do we create a sense of urgency? We're actually experiencing this again um, for those who are following the news of these school shootings that have unfortunately just been endemic in the United States, um, where we have gun control legislation that has been debated uh, ad nauseum just for years and years and years. And now we have uh, we had this just tragic situation where 19 children killed, two adults killed at a school, at an elementary school in Texas. There's a sense of urgency right that event that instance of tragedy has created a sense of urgency that has sort of sparked what otherwise had been a pretty static uh state of the gun legislation and and these debates about what gun laws should be and gun control and so on and so forth and so those who perhaps would have preferred a more incremental um incremental moves now we're seeing that renewed sense of urgency unfortunately through tragedy but this is the reality of what it means to be engaged in the policy space in the policy making space um, and what we need to do to be prepared for again things that happen perhaps out of our control things that happen where we have to where we have to uh, be ready with our legislation with our uh, whatever our agenda is so that we can advance um, advance our cause so for policy change to achieve equitable outcomes, cultural and behavioral shifts are also needed. And this was really, really important. In order for any policy changes to be, uh, to be able to be implemented, people have to think differently, right? So they have to feel differently about a particular thing. Um, we can talk, for example, about tax policy, tax legislation, um, how people feel about the taxes that they pay. Do they feel that those taxes are being used for a greater good? Do they feel that um, the taxes could be used to help support those who are perhaps on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale? Uh, if those cultural and behavioral shifts don't happen, it can make implementation of a certain uh, policy or policies a lot more difficult. And so we can't just focus on the legislation itself or whether it's an ordinance or a bill or whatever it is, we also have to focus on what does it take to create the behavioral and the cultural shifts to create a landscape that is conducive for the kind of policy change that we're pushing for. Um, so that is absolutely important. Also, policy change must be accompanied by a change in the flow of finances for redress to happen. This is a big 
conversation that is happening really around the world as we talk about not just power, but the link between money and power. And uh, we've heard of things like unfunded mandates where um, perhaps a local government or state government or national government will enact a set of policies that are supposed to be implemented without funding. Or you may see that there are no tangible redirections of uh, budgets to support a policy initiative. And this is absolutely critical. As we talk about um, at the local level, for example, um, there I've been part of many groups and coalitions that are now looking through municipal budgets to see how those dollars can be allocated in a way that actually reflects the values of residents, right? So this is where we think about how much are we spending on policing? How much are we spending on education? How much are we spending on um, public health um, crisis mitigation? And actually going through to say, this is how we can be allocating these resources differently so that the funding and the financing matches the values. So without tying it to money, again, we want to make sure that this is very realistic and responsive to what the fellows are experiencing and what others in the policy space are, are experiencing. And so connecting it to the flow of finances is really important. And then, of course, ongoing monitoring is also needed. This is going back to uh, the notion of historical policy failures and what happens if we're not monitoring? Then it's harder to, to uh, connect the dots about what the present circumstances are and the steps that led up to the present circumstances. So we have to be doing ongoing monitoring and evaluation. Uh, there's something to be said about culturally and contextually relevant and responsive evaluation uh, to ensure that the indicators and the metrics that we're using are actually relevant to those who are affected or those who are, uh, who are central to the decision-making process. But we have to have ongoing um, monitoring and then we just included another quote from one of the, one of our one of the fellows about social policies as investments, understanding the return on investment for each policy, and also understanding what will happen if we don't implement. So these are just a few uh, challenges that came up in many of our conversations with fellows and those who work in the space will probably be familiar with a lot of these challenges. Uh, advocacy and activism is demanding work. Uh, it is incredibly demanding. In many instances, it's not the most lucrative. Uh, these are very real considerations that we have to have at the forefront of our mind when it comes to the how we do this work, the importance of building coalition, the importance of self-care. Um, and that gets to the third bullet point around safety and wellness, um, how that can affect capacity to drive change, right? Um, in some contexts, it's also dangerous. Several of the fellows are uh, doing their work in incredibly precar precarious circumstances, whether it's because of um, civil unrest, governmental unrest or upheaval. Um, we have fellows that are in, in conflict zones. Um, and so we can't underestimate that this work is, it's not just you know people sitting behind a computer in an office. In many contexts, it's quite dangerous. And so how do we factor that into decision-making around what social change, what change can actually look like. Um, a couple of other challenges around fundraising. Those who've ever applied for grants know those grant cycles are not the most convenient. Um, what does it look like to have to take the time to write grants? And then those grants that come with many conditions or strings attached, how do those 
uh, influence the kinds of policies that are advocated for. I mean, there are implications also for philanthropy in terms of how they either support policy initiatives that are uh, developed by those who are closest to the issues, a more bottom-up approach, or if there's undue influence um, for those who have access to the resources, the funds, in what the policy proposals actually are. So that's a very real consideration uh, that those of us have to uh, take into account. And then the last bullet point is just, what does res resilience look like in this context? How do we take care of ourselves at the individual level, which we can't underestimate, uh, especially because of the demanding nature of this work, um, but also our communities? How do we take care of each other? How do we persist understanding that sometimes the, the arc is very long in terms of when a policy actually is implemented and the work that it takes to get there, it can be years, right? And so what does resilience look like in this context is, is another big challenge that, that fellows uh, were grappling with. And so I think Tracy, um, you know, we can talk through some of the strategies that um, some of the fellows are using. Yeah, thanks, Amore. So we just wanted to um, to close off our, our sharing of some of these findings by highlighting what the fellows are doing, despite some of those challenges we presented, despite working environments in environments where policy processes are, are not inclusive, where changes need to happen in the way government works and thinks and, and the willingness to, to engage the public. Um, despite those contextual realities, fellows have a whole um, suite of, of mechanisms and strategies that they are using to, to effectively uh, impact policy. And one of the, um, the first um, tools that came up across the, the interviews was just the importance of understanding the how, who, and when of policy making. So arming oneself with as much information about how budgets work, for example, who makes decisions, what is the role of your local political representative versus a provincial or national representative, understanding the way funding flows from, from a budget directly to, to your household or your community, um, understanding who who to influence and when to influence him. I'm always touched on issues of timing, which has been really critical. Um, so for many fellows, I think they've, they've realized that influencing policy is really about focusing on um, building those relationships and strengthening your own understanding of, of the processes, identifying gaps, um, for example, and building alliances and partnerships where it's necessary to do that or protesting where it's necessary to do that. So there are many different mechanisms to, to effect change and fellows are using um, all of these in their work. Um, something else that came through really strongly was the importance of, of narrative. Many fellows themselves and the communities that they work with have incredibly important stories to tell. Stories about the challenges and contextual realities that they're facing and, and where redress is needed, but really importantly, stories about solutions as well the ideas for, for how things could be improved in their community. And so finding creative and engaging ways to communicate those, those ideas and solutions is really important. And then creative ways of building capacity around understanding um, how government works, um, creating opportunities to, to be at the table, as it were, with decision makers. So narrative and the use of narrative tools came through strongly. And it was one of the areas where, where fellows um, also appealed to the Atlantic Institute to support them to strengthen their ability um, to do that. 
Um, and just we have another quote on this idea, which, which reflects what some of the fellows are, are doing in order to influence policy. Um, that advocacy is about knowing who to push, when to push, knowing who is an obstacle, and then figuring out how to deal with that obstacle. Um, you have to learn to play the chess game. Um, and, and our fellows have said the, the actual part of designing policy is easy because communities know what they want, they know what they need, they know how um, which investments, which which budgetary um, inputs are going to be best for their own well-being and for more equitable outcomes. So it's really about everything that precedes that, um, that navigating the system, which is a lot where a lot of their focus and energy is on. So Mark, I'm going to hand over to you to touch on the last two points. Sure. Thank you, Tracy. So the last two points are really um, critical. So individuals can catalyze and lead change, but building coalitions equals greater impact. One of the things that has happened, especially after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, is the ability for groups to really connect in ways that perhaps just had been overlooked or had been underestimated in the past. And so even though you know people are perhaps zoomed out, if you will, but what this technology has actually allowed to happen is for people to connect across space, across geography, across time in ways that perhaps had not been done, at least not at this level before. What this means is that there is such an increased capacity for coalition building. Um, we know that there are uh, individuals definitely doing policy work, but the, the real impact and opportunities for impact and scale is in being able to create and sustain coalitions um, groups that have similar interests who are able to maximize not only their resources, but their collective strategy making, their collective ideas uh, to advance a particular cause. And that has been, uh, there was a study that was conducted on uh, nonprofits in the last year and a half, and that showed that in a lot of their work, they're finding actually more opportunities to connect and build coalitions, which has been helpful, uh, particularly after the onset of the pandemic. So that is uh, something that really came, came through as a strategy um, that is relevant both now, but also moving forward. And then focusing on funding and implementation is the key. Again, just kind of going back to the earlier point about really having eyes open about the role of like where funding comes from. Who are the funders? Um, how does that impact the work? Just being very open and transparent and real about those questions um, not only helps to identify opportunities for funding, but it also helps to keep people aware of the influence of funding in these in, in policy initiatives or in these sort of change initiatives. Um, and then implementation, again, going back to the notion of monitoring and evaluation uh, one of the big challenges that came out, I, I remember, is in one of our uh, conversations, and actually quite a few of the conversations, where it's not the development of, of the policy, it's the implementation is where the rubber meets the road. The implementation is where uh, the impact can actually be felt. The implementation is what determines the effectiveness of a policy and change initiative, and the monitoring will allow us to see if we're on the right track. Right, because we know those of us who've been in the space know that you don't just pass the law, pass the ordinance, and everyone goes home. We have to stay engaged because there are tweaks, there are efforts sometimes uh, by maybe opposing interests to change things, to adjust things. And so there has to be constant vigilance 
to ensure that any changes are actually sustained and that there's continued progress. And so that's another, uh, just on implementation, evaluating and monitoring, uh, and just that overall vigilance is another strategy that fellows use, but pretty much those who operate in this space um, can use to their advantage. And so I think that is uh, the end of our presentation. So I, I think I'll hand it back over. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amara and Tracy. There's so much there to discuss, um, but I'm gonna hold off on that um, because I would like to turn the floor, the virtual floor over to my colleague, Rob Tell, who will um, present and then we'll have a chance to have some dialogue between the three of you. And I might also ask a couple of questions as chair. Tell, sure. please, over to you. Sure. Thank you so much, um, Armenia, for the introduction. And uh, Tracy and Am Amara, thank you for your wonderful presentation. You couldn't see me, but I was vigorously nodding when you were presenting because not only have I worked um, on policy, policymaking and the policymaking process as an academic, but I've also worked as a policymaker myself. I worked for the Liberian government for four years. And much of what you said definitely resonated with my experience. Uh, working for those four years in the government of Liberia. Um, one of the things you said at the end that I thought was incredibly important to remember, and I will talk about this during my own presentation, is that from the, from the perspective of the policymaking process, I would say that the most important part of that process is the implementation. Because as we know, many of our countries have really, really progressive policies, really progressive regulations, or not so progressive policies and not so progressive regulations that often don't get implemented. And in many respects, they suffer from what I call the virus of non-implementation. So implementation enforcement is absolutely, absolutely important. So I'll start by saying that um, I mentioned that I, I have worked as a policymaker and now I'm working as a scholar, but I've also worked in social movements as an act activist. So I've seen the policymaking process um, from many, many different angles. And what I wanna do in, in my short 10 to 12 minutes is to talk about in part one, what are the sort of different cycles and stages of the policymaking process, as well as the reform process, right? So we know that policy and social change are dynamic, right? They're dynamic processes that are not fixed, but incredibly, incredibly fluid, right? In part two, what I wanna walk you through is a paper that I'm actually working on that looks at and historicizes a campaign in Liberia called the Stop Firestone Campaign. And it was a campaign that was launched in 2005, lasted until about 2011. And it was an attempt to stop a major multinational rubber company from violating the rights of um, Liberian workers. And what's interesting about this particular case study is the importance of opportunity structures. So Amara and Tracy mentioned timing being very, very important. And that for me, that's an opportunity structure because what the campaign did is they aligned their advocacy efforts along the elections that took place in 2005. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that. But first let's start with the different cycles and stages of the policymaking process from a more kind of scholarly perspective. Um, and we know that the cycles and the stages of, of policymaking are the agenda setting, the formulation, the adoption, um, implementation, as well as monitoring and evaluation, which Amara stressed, and then perhaps even termination. But there's often a real tension between what scholars have called the linear process of policymaking and the interactive model of policymaking. And the linear process of policymaking, the basic premise of this is that 
you know, a proposed policy or an institutional arrangement gets on the agenda for a government body or government institution. And then there's some sort of action or decision made, and then the policy gets implemented, whether it's successful or unsuccessful. And that there's a sort of preoccupation in the policy decision-making process uh, focusing on specifically on the policy making or perhaps the funders of that particular policy or regulation. However, their involvement often ends at the decision phase, right? So there's this faulty assumption that decision making is political and then the implementation thereof is more technical or administrative when the entire process is actually highly, highly political. Um, there's also an assumption that the implementation is assumed to be the sole responsibility of the manager, or the technical lead, and that success or failure of implementation is assumed to be based on any sort of capacity of that manager, or that technical lead. When we all know, having already listened to Amara and Tracy's presentation, that implementation involves a set of divergent actors um, involved at different stages. Uh, and they might influence the implementation process to bring it to a halt, or they could regenerate that implementation process and make it more dynamic. What's interesting in this linear model is that when a policy fails, uh, the remedy to responding to this particular policy failure is either to strengthen the institutional capacity of particular government body that is, or perhaps to blame the failure of the policymaking um, on the lack of political will of a particular government without even thinking about external actors that might be involved, for instance, international donors who might be bankrolling a particular policy agenda. In this linear model, some people often assume that the linear model is perhaps the only model worth pursuing. Yet, uh, we've already heard that the real work of actually turning reform or turning social change into a sort of reality or turning policymaking into reality or reform is at the implementation stage, right? That I believe is probably the most complicated, nuanced and important stage of the policymaking process. Now, why is that? Because policy implementation is interactive. It's an ongoing process of negotiation between policymakers, yes, decision makers that is, managers, so the implementers, but then also a negotiation with the people who are going to be affected by these policies. Um, and it reminds me of uh, development sociologist Norman Long, who talks about the fact that there's something called actor-oriented analysis. And he's speaking about this actor-oriented analysis within the context of a development ecosystem that has some sort of policy implications. And he says that even the seemingly marginalized actors within a particular development ecosystem or policy agenda um, have the capacity, the knowledgeability, the wherewithal to influence the policy agenda, whether it's at the agenda setting or even the implementation process. And they also have the knowledgeability as well as the capacity to subvert sometimes the best laid plans of those who might be seemingly more powerful in a particular development ecosystem or a policy ecosystem. So it's important to remember that this process is, it's an ongoing process of dynamism. It's an ongoing process of negotiation. And even the most subjugated or seemingly subjugated or marginalized actors have an important role to play. And they also have sometimes more power than those who might seemingly be more powerful or influential in a particular ecosystem. Now let's move to the interactive model of policymaking, which is a model that I think um, 
is, is much more dynamic than the linear model for a number of reasons. So in this interactive model, the premise is that there's a state of equilibrium in a policy environment, right? And efforts to change this policy will upset this equilibrium for a number of different actors because their agendas may not necessarily be at the forefront. And it elicits a certain response or reaction from people affected by the proposed change. And this response can be positive, but it can also be negative and reactive. We also know from this interactive model that the policy decision process should be seen as a series of both formal as well as informal stages. And I wanna stress the informal stages because it's all, it's sort of the back room discussions that are held um, during the policymaking process that influence the policymaking process more than the formal um, you know, rooms, uh, meetings where people have um, actual communiques or official kind of discussions. So it's those informal stages of the policymaking process that are equally as important at the, as the set of formal stages of the policymaking process. Now, this involves numerous actors, um, not a single point with a single decision maker. This is an important aspect of the interactive model. The interactive model also says that the policy agenda represents a quote unquote stockpile of proposed changes. Now, some changes might be acted upon, but others are not. Um, and this is mostly because of the preferences or the perceptions and actions of policy elites, but also other actors who may, again, be seemingly less powerful than those um, policy elites. And it's important to think about the appreciation of the political as well as the economic environment that they face at a particular time. In this interactive model, the proposed policy reform can be altered and it can even be reversed at any stage, depending on the reactions or responses of different actors, whether they be the policymakers themselves or those who are impacted by the policy. And then last but certainly not least, central to understanding the sort of outcomes of policy implementation or policy change is how some interests are more effective at influencing high level government officials than others are, depending on the different tactics that are employed. Um, and these managers and implementers um, who control the resources, so who control the purse strings. Um, one of the important questions that policymakers will ask is ultimately money matters, who's going to fund this? Um, and not just fund it initially, but throughout the entire process of implementation. What's interesting is that there are two kinds of possibilities um, in the reform cycle. So if there's a strong reaction to policy reforms um, that are likely to occur in what scholars will call the public arena, so the public sphere, the public, sphere, uh, the public space, and this usually is likely to occur or reform or reactions to policy reforms are likely to occur in the public arena if the cost or the benefit of the reform has a direct impact on the public or is politically influential amongst these groups. So we think about in the case of Liberia where I do most of my research, there was a proposed policy reform to increase the price of rice in the 1970s and uh, rice is a staple crop in Liberia. So this created or elicited a visceral response by um, the public. Um, and there were something called the rice riots in Liberia that were pushing against this proposed increase in the price of rice because ultimately it would have a negative impact on consumers, right? Um, there's a strong reaction to policy reforms are likely to occur in the public arena, in the public sphere if the public is actually required to help implement the reform or if the full impact of change is actually immediately visible to them, right? 
On the other hand, the strong reaction to a sort of policy reform is likely to occur in what scholars call the bureaucratic arena. So amongst policymakers themselves, amongst government bodies or institutions themselves, if the cost or the burden of the reform has a direct impact on government budgets. Again, who's going to fund this? Um, who's, you know, who's gonna, who's gonna provide the, the funding to actually drive change in this particular way? Um, strong, a strong reaction to policy reforms are also likely to occur in the bureaucratic arena, arena in, the, in the, the public arena, the public sphere, if the reform requires a long time commitment to implement, right? So if there's a potential conflict or resistance, this is likely to emerge if the strong reaction to policy reforms um, occur in this bureaucratic arena. Now, what's interesting is that when a reaction to a policy reform or lack thereof in terms of implementation occurs primarily in the bureaucratic arena, um, in the policymaking arena, in the government body spaces, the po political states for a government are actually relatively low because they're discussing amongst themselves, right? It, it's relatively closed off. And I think Tracy mentioned the fact that policymaking can be deliberately exclusionary. So in an exclusionary bureaucratic arena, the stakes are quite low for policymakers. However, if a strong reaction to a reform or lack thereof occurs primarily in the so-called public sphere, the public arena, the political stakes for the government are very, very high because at that point, it's no longer an exclusionary um, myopic discussion amongst bureaucrats. So we can think about examples of this in the case of, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement that really had a sort of resurgence in 2020 um, following the death or the murder of George Floyd in which people just went on the streets and they were protesting gun violence, they were protesting police br brutality and insisting that their government officials, that their representatives do something about this. Um, we can also see examples from what a number of activists in North Africa called the revolution of dignity. So we don't say the Arab Spring because that's not a term that people in North Africa use, but the revolutions of dignity in places like Tunisia, uh, so forth and so on, Algeria, that actually ousted heads of state that had been entrenched and many of them uh, supported by Western forces for a number of years. So Hosni Mubarak, for instance, in Egypt, so forth and so on. So people again went to the streets and they were protesting quite viscerally um, the, the idea that people were take, these heads of state were taking away their dignity and the, the, in, the insistence that they re retain their dignity or they get their dignity back. The third example that I want to give is the case study of the Stop Firestone campaign in Liberia, in which um, activists, Liberian activists, both from Liberia itself in the country, domestic activists, as well as diasporic activists, were fighting for legibility, citizenship legibility, and holding this multinational corporation accountable. So for people who are not familiar with uh, Firestone in Liberia, Firestone Liberia is the largest industrial rubber plantation in the world. Um, Liberia signed a lease agreement with Firestone in 1920 for a 99-year agreement um, for a million acres of land that was leased at about six cents per acre, which is abysmal when you think about the government revenue that um, wasn't necessarily taken up by the Liberian government. So there was a campaign called the Stop Firestone Campaign that emerged in 2005 
And the intention was to hold Firestone accountable, this multinational, rubber multinational accountable. Um, the campaign was supported by Liberians in the country as well as Liberians abroad who galvanized um, a social media campaign. Um, they held uh, Liberian government officials accountable through lobbying, through activism, through advocacy. Um, and this follows a long history of decades of industrial action by Firestone workers on the, on the plantation from the 1950s all the way to the 1990s. What's interesting is that 2005 was an election year for Liberia. Liberia had just ended 14 year protracted armed conflict. And this would have been the, the second post-war election. So the advocates and the activists from Liberia and uh, those who were advocating from transnational spaces in the United States, particularly Washington DC, had access to policymakers on Capitol Hill in Washington DC, but also in, in Monrovia. And what they did was they launched uh, this campaign, which was largely a social uh, movement but they also followed the legal parameters. So they um, launched something called the 2005 Alien Torts Claim Act. And pe for people who are not familiar with Alien Torts Claim, um, it basically is um, a law that allows uh, people outside of the United States to hold US companies accountable for any sort of human rights abuses that they might um, endure or committed abroad. Now, what was interesting is that the timing of this suit coincided with the elections in Liberia, right? So some of the violations that uh, Firestone was being accused of were using child labor, um, clearly a violation of Liberian labor laws, um, environmental degradation. So what Firestone allegedly did was to dump toxins in the Farmington River, which was the only water source for workers on the plantation. In 2008, so Liberia had elections in 2005, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first elected woman head of state um, in Africa, as well as Liberia was elected. And this particular suit was a thorn in her flesh in her administration's flesh because there, there was so much advocacy against Firestone. Firestone at the time was the largest private sector employer and continues to be the largest private sector employer in Liberia. So what the government of Liberia did was interface with these advocates and activists both in Liberia, many of them were Firestone workers or former Firestone workers who were part of the union, as well as the transnational Liberian actors who were working from um, Washington DC and other spaces in the United States. And they sat down together and came up with some sort of concession renegotiated agreement. And this eventually transformed into the 2008 uh, revised concession agreement between the government of Liberia and Firestone, the first um, major renegotiated uh, concession agreement in the post-war moment in Liberia. So there were a series of different stipulations in this particular renegotiated agreement based on the demands of the, the Stop Firestone campaign, for instance. Um, and I would argue, and I'm trying to argue in this article, that it was a, it was a Stop Firestone campaign that catalyzed this particular renegotiated agreement. So a number of things that were stipulated. So the first was the Firestone had to invest in rubber, a rubber wood factory that would be used for exporting rubber goods from Liberia instead of Liberian exporting raw latex, for instance, right? As well as for domestic use. Firestone, um, according to the agreement, had to pay $2 per acre per year for the leased land as opposed to the 50 cents per acre that they were paying before the agreement um, was, was negotiated. Firestone also had to maintain a workforce of at least 50% Liberian staff. Um, and at some point, uh, you know, five or six years later, 
at least 50% uh, Liberians in management roles, which was really, really important because many of the management roles were held by so-called expats. The agreement also stated that Firestone had to build new housing with basic amenities um, and provide not only healthcare, but also education for workers and their children. However, um, as is the case of human history, the concession agreement was flawed in a number of ways. So workers had limited ability to actually form unions and that was obviously a sticking point for the Firestone Agricultural Workers Union as well as those who were campaigning in the United States. Um, they had limited rights to actually engage in industrial action. So Firestone, according to the agreement, could withdraw in the event of any sort of industrial strikes. There were no guarantees in this particular agreement of Firestone meeting any sort of environmental standards. And the revised concession agreement was not really subject to widespread public scrutiny, even though members of the Stop Firestone campaign were at the negotiation table when the government of Liberia was helping to institute these particular um, stipulations in the new agreement. So there were only really two days reserved for any sort of public consultation. Again, this was deliberate, definitely by design, to be uh, meant to be very exclusionary because the government of Liberia realized that they could only take the demands of the Stop Firestone campaign so far, um, that they had to contend with this US multinational and its power and wealth and finances. So I think one of the things that I've kind of taken away from Rock this- a couple of more minutes, yeah, well, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine that I've taken away from this campaign is that uh, going back to earlier statements about the policy implementation process and the enforcement, as well as the monitoring and evaluation of that policy making process being incredibly, incredibly important. And I would say it's just as important, if not more important than the, actually, than the actual policy formulation itself. Um, a lot of these uh, insights were gleaned from interviews that I conducted with uh, Firestone Workers Union in Liberia in April, 2022. And I will definitely follow up with uh, additional interviews coming forward. And one of the things that I learned is that um, the union is still very much at loggerheads with the multinational itself. So in as much as things have changed, they've also remained the same. So I'll end there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rob Tell. That's a fantastic talk. I didn't want to stop you, but I'm also mindful that I wanted to have a dialogue between you, Amara, and Tracy. So if I could ask Amara and Tracy to put on the cameras um, so we can see you. And um, before I open the floor to questions from the audience, I wanted to give you three an opportunity to, to talk to each other. Amara and Tracy. So um, let's take about five, 10 minutes to have a, um, a discussion amongst yourselves. And then I'm, I, I see several questions in the Q&A box. So, um, Amara, maybe I'll start with you if you want to respond to Rob Tell's talk and then Tracy and then Rob Tell. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it was, you know, so much that resonated with, with me, but in particular about the access to information and the, the campaign and sort of the limits, especially when working with government. And so I had 
just so many similar experiences from having worked in government um, where, you know, it just became very clear that notions of transparency and engagement only extend so far. And so things like um, when, when we say transparency, for example, it meant dumping 10,000 pages of PDFs online and saying, hey, we're transparent, right? And that's not transparency. Or you know, they'd hold a meeting and it would be in the middle of the day when working mothers or, or families who may, may have been re relevant would not be able to attend. And they said, well, hey, we had these five community engagement meetings. You know, just these very arbitrary. So that was immediately what came to mind in thinking about how they respond to these campaigns or advocacy campaigns and then some of the barriers that are put in place to actually limit engagement. And so one of the, the, the things that just really stands out to me is, you know, the importance of democratizing information um, for those of us who work in government, but especially for those of us who are organizers. Um, the information that we access or have access to and our responsibility to democratize that information. Um, because in some cases we don't have, you know, government may not be interested in doing that. Um, and also the, the notion of um, democratization takes many forms. It's everything from when meetings are held. It is uh, translating information in, in ways that are easily accessible. So I know Tracy and I talked about how when it comes to um, fiscal policy for a city or even a budget, you know, sometimes policy language is deliberately obscure to narrow those who have access to it. And so we have to be very conscious of that that the language that is used, the jargon and terminology that is used, there are simple ways that we can convey this information. And democratizing means translating this information in a way that is easily accessible to those who are going to be impacted. So those are just a couple of things that, that came to mind. I, thought, I was just kind of laughing because um, just so many similarities in dealing with government and some of the obvious ploys that are used to inhibit change uh, that we have to work around. Thanks, Samara, for those reflections. Yeah, translating policy jargon is a task in itself. Um, Tracy, do you want to share reflections before I hand over to Rob Tell? Yeah, thanks, Rob Tell. I, I was really excited when you put the emphasis on implementation because that's very much the space I'm working and it's been a bit of a, a journey for me. So like you, I also worked in government leading policy development. And the last few years I've been working in civil society and advocacy. And I have to say it was only when I sort of ventured into that space that I really understood the importance of, of implementation. And so that's very much the level at which um, I work in South Africa, working with informal settlement communities is, is focused on. Um, and one of the things I, I just wanted to, to hear from your experiences is around um, how to keep um, communities, residents and ourselves motivated and engaged when change is so slow. Uh, and particularly when things regress, we've, we've touched a little bit on, on policy failures. Um, and, and through your story, you've shared a bit about how, you know, communities and advocates needed to adapt in response to to, to instances where they, they didn't get the impact that they wanted. And so this is constant like shifting, playing the chess game, as, as one of our fellows um, said. And, so much of the work that um, me and my colleagues are doing in South Africa, working with, with grassroots organizations and, and communities across informal settlements, is actually focused on, on that, on, on people's sort of will, the energy, you know, keeping them engaged. So in South Africa, with, with water and sanitation, 
government often uses this language of um, informal settlements being temporary, but many of them have been there for decades now, and there's nothing temporary about them. So um, keeping keeping communities um, you know constantly engaged and um, I guess faith having a faith that things will happen and a faith and a belief in the agency to be able to impact that change is very much a big part of, of what we, we do on a daily basis um, and also for ourselves to be quite honest i mean we discussed some of the the challenges associated with this work um and i think for me personally the sense of solidarity being part of this community has been an important part of what's kept me motivated and then also just you know i've sort of um my framing is that we're just eating the elephant one bite at a time. So the small changes is what keeps me going and just understanding that every small change contributes to, to a bigger um, impact one way or another. But I'd love to hear your experiences around that and, um, and your learnings from, from your work as well. Thanks, Tracy. Rob Tell? Yeah, I, I mean, I think those are really, really great comments. Thanks for the, the feeding back. What I've observed is one of the most difficult um, elements of, of the, the change making process is when 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 governments uh, turn over. <laughs> so you've got you've got a policy that's not necessarily institutionalized. So it's not embedded in a constitution or something that can't just be wiped away by the next administration. So how do you maintain continuity when there isn't none, when there, when there isn't continuity in a particular regime? So if a regime there's a regime change it's almost like you have to start all over again. And that's that's probably one of the most frustrating aspects of, of in being engaged like as much as you possibly can in the policymaking process. And I found that throughout the, the Stop Firestone campaign from one administration to another, there seemed to be a lag in terms of um, momentum. Um, and I find that the morale around the campaign has has dissipated significantly since 2011, where people just feel like there's not much I can do um, so I think that's the most difficult part. What I what I also wanted to mention is Tracy mentioned something. I mean, I think it was Amara who mentioned something about the difficulty of translating the policy jargon into an accessible language that just anyone can can access. And I think sometimes the onus is on those of us who are researchers as well to do the same, <laughs> translating our own scholarly jargon into a language that policymakers can use, especially if we're collecting data that's that's important for the sort of evidence base that will feed into the policymaking process. So I always tell this funny story where I was doing work on citizenship within the context of West Africa and Liberia specifically. And I was so excited because I got my first article published on this particular project. And I sent it to one of the advisors to the president. <laughs> and he, he sent me a message immediately and said, what is this? Like, I, I can't even decipher what, what, you're, what is it you're trying to say? Can I have a two page brief? a policy brief that tells me what are the major issues, um, recommendations and bullet points. And I had to I had to kind of come back to myself and say, oh yeah, I remember those days of being a policymaker and trying to you know, stamp out fires every single day. You really don't have the headspace and the mental capacity to try to make sense of a journal article <laughs> that's, that's just completely inaccessible. So I think you know, beyond policymakers turning jargon into accessible language is also important for us who work on research related or policy related research to do the same for policymakers. Here, here. 
Totally agree with you. <laughs> um, and guilty as charged, I would say. Um, before I, I, I go to the audience in the Q&A, I did have a question um, to Amara and Tracy, because you were, maybe Amara more, you were talking about, you know, the, the wider political and cultural context, which I agree is very important to make those changes. But if you're talking about a context which is so polarized, Let's take the United States, right? And you take an issue which is so emotive and so polarizing, such as the gun, um, access to guns and, and so forth. Um, how do you work in that kind of context where the narratives you create are going to be completely discounted by those who oppose that? So I was wondering, you know, when you were doing these interviews with the fellows, how are people grappling with the issues of polarization, the lack of empathy, or, you know, where, where can we even meet to have these conversations to have that change that we want? I know it's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a huge, it's, it's huge. I mean, the climate, the political climate and the social climate is such that um, there is, so I think a couple of things. One, this is going back to the point about the behavioral and cultural shifts and what it takes to create uh, behavioral and cultural shifts, what it takes to change hearts and minds and the power of narrative, right? It cannot be uh, overstated. So we are, we're definitely in a time where there is so much polarization, but I think for those who are advocating on an issue and the other side or other sides may be doing the same thing, but it's important for us to keep in the back of our minds that the clarity of our goal, the power of narrative through those stories, those narratives that actually speak to the human condition. It is why, um, unfortunately, the tragedy is what spurs the action. Right. Um, sometimes the triumph spurs the action, but in this instance, it's the tragedy that spurs the action. But having the clarity of goal and the persistence, especially if it takes years, right, ensures that when that thing that is out of our control happens, we can move nimbly and quickly to advance our cause in that space. Right. And I find that that is the only way or not the only way, but it's one of the ways to kind of keep your eye on the ball in spite of the polarized dynamics that may exist on either side, because they're going to be opportunists on any side that will you know, try to take advantage of an issue, et cetera. But having clarity of goal, clarity of purpose, continuing to push on the importance of narrative to, to create the shift in the minds and hearts of people so that they are thinking differently about a particular issue it creates a landscape that's conducive for the policy agenda to move. And that's been really in navigating in this kind of environment. It's just, um, it's the way to go. Otherwise it just, you know, things can devolve into misinformation and disinformation. And then the field is so muddled that you can't really advance um, in that kind of environment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'm going to now turn to the questions from the audience. So I'll take um, a couple at a time. So um, I, okay, says Rob Tell just answered that question. Um, so the question is how do we balance the policy objectives in our research with making academic contributions? I think Rob Tell, you might want to, um, you know, respond to that um, uh, and, um, you know, thinking the the the, the question um, 
Melissa, who's asking the question, says, I feel as a PhD student at LSE, I'm being asked to prioritize quite theoretical contributions first, even though I would like my research to benefit policy. So any advice? And I will take a question um, from um, T.O. Molefe for Tracy and Amara, which is around policy change work and the role of evidence. And um, thinking around does evidence matter? For whom does it matter? Um, you know, how do you um, gather that evidence? Um, so, and what are the limits, if any, of evidence when pushing for equitable change? So I think we're talking around epistemic issues and kind of, um, so I will ask Rob Tell to please take the first question and then Tracy and Amara, you can take the second. And just a, a quick question um, also to Tracy and Amara. I think on one of your slides, you had mentioned India and fundraising tools. If you wanted to elaborate on that. It's about fundraising tools used by fellows in India. So Rob Tell, please. Um, Sure, sure. I, so Melissa, I started answering the question, but I, I can certainly elaborate on, um, you know, that policy brief may be, may be the best tool to, to feed to the policymaker, not necessarily a journal article that's published in a journal that very few people have access to. But what I usually do um, just in, in all of my research, because all of my research has some sort of policy relevance, um, is I just realize that, you know, I know that I have to fulfill certain academic requirements. I mean, uh, whether it's a monograph or a journal article or a book chapter, but I will take that journal article or that book chapter or parts of that monograph and I might turn it into a blog entry that is accessible to most people, or I will turn that into a two-page policy brief if it's necessary to feed to a particular policymaker. So the idea is to speak to different audiences and meet them where they are. Um, but obviously, you know, academic has its own conventions that we all have to follow and tick those boxes, but that isn't the only, um, that isn't the only way that we can speak to multiple audiences that they're, and, and I think the online presence of blogs and, um, you know, these online platforms make it so much easier for us to speak to multiple kinds of audiences, um, saying essentially the same thing, but just in different ways. And I would encourage you to do that. Yeah, it's a bit more work, but I think it's worth it. Um, yeah, thanks, Ruptel. Um, Amara, readership as well. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> more impact, as um, um, Amara and and Tracy. So the question was one um, about evidence, mm -hmm. and you know how you see the relationship between evidence and policy. Tracy. Thanks, yeah, I can start. Um, thanks for the question. I think it's uh, there's a lot in there, but just to say that I think uh, evidence matters, but on its own, it's not enough, right? It's really a question of um, what evidence you're using, how you've collected it, and how you use it um, to what effect. And I'll give you an example from, from my own work. So a lot of what I do um, at, at IBP South Africa is analyze um, municipal budgets to be able to identify how money flows or doesn't flow to, to the urban poor. And so we analyze those budgets. We can indicate exactly where there's a mismatch between the need for water and sanitation services versus what government is allocating. And we even look at the budget, uh, other aspects of the budget and be able to say, oh, you have a pot of money here that you're not using. This is what we think you can use for water and sanitation. We publish that. It's a very... Um, 
thorough body of evidence that we present as part of our, our advocacy, but publishing it on its own is not going to bring change. Um, what's really important is we take that information and we train the communities affected by those budgets to understand how funding flows, to understand who makes decisions in, in the municipality, who to go to to ask for more services, etc. And once we've done that training, strengthening the capacity and agency to engage, um, create opportunities for them to sit with decision makers themselves, speak on their own behalf. Um, as much as me and my colleagues, we might craft a body of evidence, we will never go and represent anybody else. Um, having communities speak on their own behalf makes the evidence legitimate. It gives it meaning, it strengthens accountability. So um, there's, there's so many elements to this question of evidence. And, and I think there's consensus that on its own, um, you know, data information is important, but but it's not sufficient. You have to be really thoughtful and and diversify your approach. I think in terms of how you utilize it and that evidence for for policy change. Thank you so much, Tracy. Amara, would you like to add, share? Yeah, no, I think I think Tracy really answered uh, the question. I think um, for us to note that oftentimes evidence is conflated with objectivity, and we cannot we can't conflate evidence and objectivity or just flatten it that this evidence is objective because as Tracy mentioned, the questions of the who, the how is it collected? Who is the evidence evidence collected from? For what purpose? Who funded the study that was utilized to collect the evidence? Like these are questions that will play a role in the outcomes, right? And so as, as researchers or as policymakers, those are the kind of questions that we have to ask. I think the, um, the also the notion of evidence is being used to discount uh, lived experience, right? So as in someone who, my background is in evaluation and both quantitative and qualitative methodologies, but oftentimes there's this notion that the that the quantitative analysis is somehow more rigorous evidence than the qualitative analysis or engaging or even ethnography and other methodologies. And I think we have to dispel, uh, d d disabuse ourselves of that notion. Um, the the questioner asked about a framework, and I often use the cultural culturally and contextually relevant and responsive evaluation framework because it centers the those who are the target or at, in the central part of a particular policy or intervention. That those voices, again, the people who are closest to the issues, have should be consulted first, should be centered and prioritized in terms of the evaluating of the impact or the effectiveness of a particular intervention. And so that is a framework that I tend to use. It involves both quantitative and qualitative methodologies, but it, it goes a, a step further because it's also about the questions that we're asking, right? So it's not just the numbers that we plug in or the data sets that we can sort of distill. It is the questions that we're asking. It is who is asking the questions. It's how the questions are asked, when they are asked. So that framework, I think, is is useful, especially when we're talking about what evidence we can use to support a particular intervention or to to challenge a particular uh, policy or intervention. Thank you very much. Um, let me take a few more questions. So we have one from Eliman Bikane. Um, Eliman asks. Um, the challenge is after great work, how to transform policy briefs into action. 
What's the best way to influence decision makers who are following a different logic, short-term effect, and not transformative impact? So I think that's a really important question about the different logics and, and interests perhaps there. Um, there is another question here from Farhat Bano. It says, governments do come up with policies that are socially divisive and derail positive social change. Could you please talk more about that? Um, and I'll take a third question from Adrian Lee. Um, does the historical entrenchment of social mores and conventions lead to the resistance of policy change? For example, the gun lobby in the United States. So um, last time I started off with Robtel, this time I'll start off with um, Amara and then Robtel Tracy. And um, you don't have to answer all of them, you can choose. So we have questions um, around um, different uh, issues. So Amara, I don't know which one you'd, you'd like to take. Yeah, so um, I guess I had just kind of a short response to the question of um, policy of uh, positive social change. And I'm just um, looking at the, the question again. And so, the, well, the first thought that came to my mind was positive for whom, right? Mm. So if it's, it could be positive for me, that would be very not positive perhaps for, for government or for whomever the target. And so how do we, um, you know, how, how are we defining mm. what positive social change looks like? And governments, they, yes, they may come up with policies that are socially divisive, but that government has the interests in their ears, right? Some special interests. So even if it may be socially divisive, it may be financially lucrative for special interests, right? So that was just uh, something that quickly came to mind. And then just to briefly touch on the other question about um, sort of the, how can you ch change a policy proposal, I guess, into an action plan? And one of the experiences that stands out in my mind was I was working in city government while doing a PhD program and it was the worst kind of cognitive dissonance ever <laughs> <laughs> because in my day-to-day, -day, it's the emergencies, it's the fires of working in city government, working in the mayor's office. It's the quick responses. It's everything being governed by press release and by press conference. And you don't have the time or the luxury to just think. And then in my PhD program, was just, that was all we were, <laughs> we were doing was thinking and writing. Um, but it was really, it really created a discipline in being able to be concise and really hone in on what's important, both from the research perspective, what is the question we're trying to answer, uh, breaking things down into um, parts that are manageable as opposed to the whole thesis or the whole dissertation. Uh, and then in city government, how do we respond to the immediate, but keeping an eye on the long-term? And that's why I always circle back in my work to what are the root causes and thinking about systems rather than treating symptoms, which we often end up doing uh, in the government space. So yeah, that question just, it brought to mind a very interesting time in life where I was felt like two, two people. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was a very um, interesting example. Um, Rob Tell, if I can ask you to yeah, unmute. Sure. So I, I think one of the one of the one of the major sort of important takeaways that I would I would stress is the importance of befriending <laughs> 
And I can't stress this enough, but mid-level bureaucrats, so they're the ones who actually do all the heavy lifting and the work. We think that it's the permanent secretary or the minister or the secretary of state or whatever. It's it's really those, and having worked as a mid-level bureaucrat, you're the one who brings, in terms of the policy agenda, to its head. You're the one who determines what's important and what's not. And you just feed it to the, the, the figurehead, which is the head of the agency or the head of the government institution. So if 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 someone is very, very interested in moving the needle in any sort of policymaking process, I would say make those technocrats, those mid-level bureaucrats, your friends, because they are the ones who are going to bring the important issues to the fore um, and, and insert those important issues and those important considerations into the, the public, into the, the policy discourse and make it actually concretized. Um, and I, I think the, the point that was well made earlier about how some policies are incredibly regressive, they're not meant to transform or um, they're, they're actually meant to reproduce inequalities for a particular agenda being, being met. And the example that I have is from my own research that I just completed on um, dual citizenship legislation in Liberia, which has been lingering in legislative limbo for over 10 years, 15 years. And it finally got on the Senate floor and it's been passed. And what I kept saying to a number of senators, because I had a chance to present my work to the Senate of Liberia last December, I kept saying that it's important to, yes, it's important to think about the sort of diasporic aspirations. Yes, we want to legislate dual citizenship, but because it will open up the space for Liberians abroad to become important political, economic, and social actors in terms of post-war reconstruction. But we also have to think about the diasporic anxieties. What does this mean for people who um, have experienced nothing but uh, socioeconomic deprivation. And they see this seemingly privileged group of people being incredibly, incredibly privileged by giving them a second um, passport. What does that mean in terms of reproducing inequality? So I think as policy or as researchers and people who are interested in the policymaking process is to demonstrate the different nodes of how a particular policymaking agenda or policymaking insertion could affect different groups of people within the same ecosystem and how that's important because, again, I think having experienced policymaking, we can have a lot of blinders about this is the agenda, this is the agenda we want to push forward without thinking about how it might affect a multitude, a multitude of different people. So, Thank you so much. Tracy, over to you. Thanks. Yeah, just, just building on what uh, my colleagues have said. From the perspective of South Africa, I think as far as policies um, which entrench or um, divide societies or entrench social injustices, what we're really grappling with is um, policies which were actually well-intended and well-meaning, but had a host of unintended consequences that we're just now trying to undo or, or shift. And that's incredibly hard to do. So one example is South Africa has... Uh, on paper, a very progressive public housing uh, policy program where if you meet a certain level of criteria, um, you earn below a certain income, you qualify for the free housing, a free house which the government will build for you. Um, but that housing is often built on government-owned land, which tends to be the cheapest land furthest away from economic opportunities, further away from the core. And so that program inadvertently, yes, has provided homes to a few million people, but it's entrenched segregation and we have a history of apartheid where 
we had systemic um, racism and, and segregation. It's really exacerbated that. It, it's moved the most vulnerable people even further from, from economic opportunities. And so trying to undo that um, is part of the challenge and maybe part of what, what Elemani has mentioned here, why government officials do focus on these short-term um, uh, interventions and, and investments rather than, than long-term. Um, and so in terms of, you know, a lot of our advocacy work is, is around, um, you know, making friends, building alliances, um, showing empathy, that goes a long way. I will say for me personally, it comes for a lot to be able to go into a room and say, I've worked in government for five years, I, I get it, I know you're working in, in a challenging space, but I also know that that change is possible. Um, and sometimes that's what, what you have to do also is to show them a bit of a roadmap um, of of how smaller ships can, can unlock some of the changes that, that we want to see. So I think taking a solution-driven approach, one that's informed by, by the context, by the way budgets and policies are developed, can be really powerful in building, um, building those relationships and, and shifting the mindsets, I think, of, of the implementers, um, people who are actually going to be, be driving the kinds of changes that, that we want to see. Excellent. Thank you so much. We're down to the last five minutes. Um, and there's several questions, but I will take the question from Khadija Shabiri, who's had that um, there. Uh, and this is the final question. And um, I will ask whoever would like to reply. She asks, what are the key factors that need to be focused on during policy implementation analysis? I'm happy to say. Okay. <laughs> Uh, just from my own experience with this, um, I think for me, policy implementation analysis is really about who is affected by by that implementation, the way um, government has or has not um, put the resources into a certain community. So um, some of the work we, we do and really the basis of our advocacy is community-based um, monitoring of services and community experiences that feeding into the process. So starting with that, doing a sort of baseline, for example, with water and sanitation, where work, understanding what services exist in a community, what doesn't exist, and how the lack of those services really affects the people who live there, um, and what sort of changes would um, bring them a safer, healthier livelihood and environment in which to live. And that's a really powerful tool. I don't see it as a largely desktop exercise. You mm -hmm. do have to do the desktop work, um, but I think that experiential data is really at the heart of a policy implementation analysis um, from, from my perspective. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you very much. So we're down to the last couple of minutes. Um, just very brief 30 second interventions from Rob Tell and Amara and Tracy, if you want. And then I'm going to close the event and thank um, you all for fantastic fantastic event for such wonderful presentations, thought-provoking presentations. Um, this is one of those times when, you know, you wish we could have more time to talk and also to, to, to our audience for their great um, interventions as well. So um, uh, Amara, Rob Tell, Tracy, any final, very quick interventions? Yeah, I just wanted to say something quickly. I think it was one of the questions that asked about um, what's going, what's working well here. I think quite often when we're talking about the policymaking process, it's always focused on what's not working. And I think in terms of implementation, one of the things that you could tease out is what's working well here and how do we build on that? That's a really good point. Thank you. I think just following actually on that point is to never underestimate or dismiss the wins. 
I think, you know, a lot of times when, you know, folks want the big win, right? The big thing. But even those little things, a meeting that was scheduled, uh, a one pager that was developed and passed out, a, a temporary change in an ordinance. Two, there's a phrase or a saying, I don't know if it's from the Bible or somewhere. I hope it's not because my parents would be very angry if I don't remember. Um, but it's, it's something that says, like, do not despise small beginnings, right? And I think a lot of times I have that in my mind so that I can really appreciate and not take for granted the small victories. Like every victory is a victory. Every win is a win. And we shouldn't discount them or, or um, ignore them or feel like they're not significant enough. So. That's really, thank you so much for that. And last but not least, Tracy. Thanks. Yeah, I think for me, the, the last two years in particular has really brought down uh, the importance of, of community and solidarity. Um, that's really gotten me and I think many of the other the fellows in our community through some very difficult um experiences and times in, in the work that we do and you know we are all human beings at the end of the day and I think going into these engagements even if they are adversarial I think finding our common humanity um, and just reminding ourselves of that has been really instrumental. Um, I generally believe most people in the public sector have the same agenda and desires in terms of change and transformation um, so building those bridges is, is really important um, and yeah just uh, just reminding ourselves that we are all we are all humans we have the same uh, interests, needs and concerns fundamentally um, and and the need to support and, and protect each other I think is is really important. Thank you so much thank you for those thoughts um, for me it's been as I said a pleasure to chair today's event thank you again to all our speakers for presenting and to everyone in the audience who joined us. If you'd like to hear more about the LSE's International Inequalities Institute and the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program, please follow the links in the chat. And um, I bid you a good rest of your day, evening, depending on where you are. If you would like to hear more about our upcoming events, please sign up to our fortnightly newsletter. And the final point I will make is that we have the AFSI keynote lecture for the 2021-2022 academic year happening next week. The title of the talk is Decolonizing Pedagogy, Race, Gender, and Marginal Voices in Higher Education. Um, that will be delivered by Professor Heidi Mirza. And it will take place at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, the 7th of June. If you're interested, please go on to the International Inequalities website for further information. So until we meet again, virtually or otherwise, thank you, goodbye, and stay well. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.